If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you want to use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old-school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. This is Andy. Welcome to the Sprinkler Nerd Show. So glad to have everyone along with us again today. I've really been looking forward to recording today's show, mostly because I'm a big believer in having a mentor in your business and your career. Today on the show, I'm fortunate enough to be able to introduce you to Paul Bassett, one of my mentors and the person who has probably influenced me the most in my career so far. And I'm honored to say that Paul is the single reason that I chose to be in the irrigation industry instead of the landscape industry. Paul and I met in February of 2002 while working at Chapel Valley Landscape Company in Baltimore, Maryland. I was immediately drawn to Paul's enthusiasm, his passion to, how do I say this, other than his passion to challenge the status quo and be the best that he can be. Paul is a creative thinker, he is an innovator, and his irrigation journey is unmatched in this industry. I know of no other person who has climbed from where Paul started to where he is now. So without giving away any more episode spoilers, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate being here. This is a, quite the adventure, for sure. I, I'm glad that you put this together. The words of, of wisdom that you just um, employed upon me was certainly empowering. I haven't heard it that way from you anyway for a long time. So I'm very grateful and humbled that I was able to help influence you in your career. I appreciate that as well. And what's fun, I think, about our relationship is that we are as close now, I would say closer in many ways than we were when we met. And I can't say that about a lot of people. You know, as time goes on, uh, friends come and go, some people you keep in touch with. And you and I have just been close um, going all the way back to 2002. And in 2002, I was fresh out of college and you were a seasoned, what I would call irrigation professional. And I, you know, was sort of stuck in the box at, uh, at Chapel Valley cranking out drawings. And uh, you were, you kind of um, gave me the, the vision to look at something different, the irrigation industry. Um, so I appreciate that. And one of the things that sort of stuck with me from the beginning is that you started in the field, in the trenches, glue and pipe together. Um, and so you, you have the, uh, the knowledge base uh, right at the ground level. So I think in today's discussion, kind of like to start there. You know, remember, Drew, it was when we put together that CAD training with Chapel Valley and Tom Nugent decided you need to go here, Andy, and help hopefully develop an AutoCAD program within Chapel Valley. Because at the time, if you remember, everything we were doing then was all pen and paper. So the first day we met, it was at that uh, initial impetus of the development of AutoCAD into Chapel Valley, 2002. Which, if I'm not mistaken, that you planted that seed. Yeah, that was one of my best sales ever uh, as a career salesperson was to convince Landon Reeve and James Reeve that we needed to move from the pencil and the paper into the computer. 
And at the time, luckily, the economy was doing well and we had some extra funding to be able to fund that particular project. So, yeah, that's how you and I met. Um, yes, And here we are today still enjoying irrigation, a little bit more advanced technology, which certainly both you and I are grateful for to be able to embrace technology. Yeah. And I was, I think, 23 and you were about 30 or so. And I was just getting started. And you already had at least 10 years of irrigation experience or more. Um, because if I'm not mistaken, you started in your teens in this industry. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, I was 19 years old. But yeah, you and I are pretty much 10 years uh, exactly apart. So if you were 23 at the time you were Chapel Valley, I was 33. So tell us about Paul at 19 and how you got in this industry. Oh, thanks, Drew. So I remember when I was fresh out of high school, um, I inadvertently got my girlfriend at the time pregnant and I needed a job. And, and one of the things that Paul, at least at the time when I was 19 years old, had is I had muscle and I had a back and I had strength. Uh, didn't quite have a way to get to and from work. So I found the job being a laborer with Chesapeake Irrigation Systems um, with Dave Underwood and Bill Underwood at the time. Uh, and I was able to ride my bike um, to awesome. get to their shop. <laughs> yeah, so that sort of gives you the idea of where I was at the time of my life. Um, and I was able to ride my bike or, or, or hustle to their offices when I first started. And the first thing I did was really, I was cleaning out trenches um, for Rebel Burr and his team still working there today. Um, when we were installing irrigation systems, I had no clue what I was doing at the time, um, but I was fortunate at least to have a job that I can get some sort of paycheck to be able to provide for my, you know, my new family that was coming on. Um, so yeah, I literally was able to start in the field clearing trenches, clearing rocks out of the trenches, um, gluing the pipe, putting it in, tamping it back, getting the rocks out. Um, you know, it's, it's a humbling beginning for sure, especially where, you know, we've, we've been able to achieve today, but, um, it taught me a lot about humility, integrity, and where things go, um, and mm -hmm. where they start. So you were, uh, you were a laborer at that point, probably what we might call today unskilled labor. If you were digging the trenches and filling them in, um, day, you know, general labor, doing what people told you to do. How did you go from general labor into being more experienced? Well, you know, it was funny because I remember when I was first setting my first sprinkler heads um, back in 1989, and um, I set them too high. I didn't know the difference between flush and mount and, <laughs> and rebel was like, no, 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 Paul, that's not how we do it. And I'm like, okay, well, show me, Rebel. What do, what do I need to do better? Um, so he he instructed me and showed me how to how to set the head proper to grade, so the lawnmowers don't cut them. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, that's wise. Okay, yes, we got to set the sprinkler head so the lawnmowers don't cut them. Um, so you know, as I learned through the process of, of um, falling down and getting back up and learning the the pros and cons, um, I was able to graduate from doing labor work um, into actually um, operating a, a, a trencher, uh, believe it or not, and a vibratory plow. Actually, I remember one of the first projects that I, I did was um, Rebel gave me a chance to uh, operate a vibratory plow. And I remember it was in the summer 
and it was dry and the ground was hard as rock and I could barely get the pipe in the ground two, three inches. And it was, the, the machine was bouncing all over like a pogo stick. I couldn't remember. I was like, wow, is this how this is supposed to work? <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, we are not going to be able to put the, the vibratory plow in the, in the ground. We're going to have to move to the trencher side. It was too dry, oh, too hard. It was, it was too, it was clay and it was in, you know, the Western part of Maryland, um, in Potomac, Maryland. So, you know, it was a, it was a wonderful experience because I got to learn how to operate a piece of equipment instead of operating a shovel and a rake all the time. So I went from using my, my mind instead of my back as much as I did at the time. So I, I felt that that was a good way mm-hmm. to move up, um, in, in the irrigation industry. So I started running the small, uh, vibratory plows. What was those called? Case mini sneakers. Okay. That might've been before you were even your yeah. day, Andy, some of the old school guys will remember the case mini sneakers. They didn't have trenchers on the, on the front of them. They were just a small vibratory plow, barely putting in maybe a one inch piece of pipe is all that they, that machine could, could install. Then we had to upgrade to the, to the trencher. So uh, Rebel was able to show me how to operate the trencher properly, the right depths and safety. And, and I was able to learn how to um, you know, put the trencher in the ground and, and, and move the soil aside so we can put the pipe in the ground. Awesome. Awesome. So you went from being a laborer to running the equipment. And what came after that? After you were running the plows and trenchers, uh, were you running crews? Did you go into uh, troubleshooting? What came next? Yeah, I was putting in installation uh, systems, small residential, medium-sized residential um, at the time when I was with Chesapeake Irrigation. As the winter went through, we were putting in systems, but then the springtime came around and we needed to start up sprinkler systems. So I was able to move into starting understanding how to turn on sprinklers, adjust the sprinkler heads properly, set the program, set the schedule. Uh, So I, I gradually moved into being a technician. And many years I spent being a technician um, in the irrigation industry, winning from residential into the commercial. And that's where, you know, I got a big eye opening Mm -hmm. when I was starting to learn how to do commercial uh, irrigation system at the time, because before that point, I never had any formal irrigation training doing the, the normal uh, programming 10 minutes on a spray, 30 minutes on a rotor, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That Without was, the why. You didn't have the why were you doing it. That's right. Not at the time, you know. Um, and then, it, you know, it, it, there was a point in my career where, it, you know, I finally realized that I didn't have the science or I didn't have the why, as you say, behind my career. So I was a little bit stagnated in my career at the time, I couldn't really only go so far. It's all I knew was, uh, you know, what my body could do and some of what my mind, but I didn't have the knowledge base that, that I felt I needed to, to sort of grow in the industry. So how did you go from being that technician? Where did you go to get this information to, to grow your knowledge base and learn the whys and, uh, maybe become certified and keep moving forward in your career? So there was a project that came to me, um, back in the, the early 90s, 91, 92, 93, I believe. And I was again working at Chapel Valley Landscape Company. Well, well I went from um, residential com- companies and I got a job working for Chapel Valley Landscape Company as a 
a service technician. And I got a chance to work at the National Geographic Society headquarters building in Washington, D.C. And I was fixing the sprinklers and one of the guys that was running the building with Johnson Controls came up to me and said, hey, by the way, we're going to make this building a green building and we need to save water and we need to save it in the irrigation systems. And here is this book, Paul. And this was when LEED just came out. This was the first pilot building. And I was so lucky enough to be the guy on the ground in the field when green building first started in, in the country. And he handed me this giant book and I haven't read a book since I was in high school at the time. And I was like, wow, this is different. And it, that book empowered me at the time. What was the, what book was this? What was the name of the book or the type of book? Sure. It was the, um, the lead leadership and energy and environmental design. It was their design guide. And it talked about, you know, how, what, what it took to make a green building. And that was probably uh, version 1.0, as you said, the first ever lead design guide. It was it. It was the pilot, pilot book. It was a pilot program. This was the first building to um, undertake the lead program. And again, I just so happened to be lucky enough to be the technician at the time. And it made me realize, uh, Andy, that, that I did not know the science behind our craft. And that empowered me. And at that point, I decided I needed to find classes. I needed to define, find education. I needed to, to learn the craft beyond the field. And that's when I got engaged with taking classes with the Irrigation Association. I started becoming certified um, as a, a designer, as an auditor. And it just empowered me to really understand the science behind our business. And it, it, it was a, a watershed moment for, for me and my career. Yeah, it sounds like a true uh, sort of spark of inspiration, if you will, it gave you a vision that you could grab onto to continue you, you know, for the next 20 years of your career to where you are now. That one moment in time when you got that book, you had a little aha moment that inspired you. That was the moment. That was it. That was really what what created the impetus of my water conservation career uh, to realize as an irrigation professional, it isn't about how much you water or watering the, the grass and the watering of the, the landscape. It's about how efficient we can do it and maintain the water um, application um, to the right amount and not overwatering or underwatering. So that, that's... Um, really gave me the, the moment that I needed to really do something different, be someone different than I was in the past. And then pretty much right at that time or right after that time then would be when you and I met and you were a, uh, what they called a sales executive at Chapel Valley in charge of selling commercial and residential, but primarily it ended up being commercial projects. And you were very successful at selling commercial irrigation work. Yeah. And I think the, one of the reasons for that was um, because we had a really good company that we were working for and they had a great reputation. Um, Landon and James Reeve uh, were very good folks uh, and they built a really good company. And we had a lot of clients that we can, we can tap into to be able to provide them with services. But also I think at the time when we were doing the work, 
um, we were able to educate our clients on the proper way of doing it and spending a little bit more upfront. So we had additional savings in the water long-term. And that was the thing I learned when we started doing the green building work was it wasn't always about first cost, the cheapest way to put thing in the ground. We were able to show our clients if we were to spend a little more money, invest into flow sensors, invest into smart controls, that these things would actually save them money. And in return, it would lower the cost of operation and ownership of the irrigation system long-term. And that was the benefit that we found, as well as increasing the integrity of the landscaping, knowing that it was able to survive properly. Just doing the system right, at least that's what I remember, is that a lot of the lower bid uh, systems from, from competing contractors, they were submitting projects that were not correctly designed and therefore the price was lower because maybe they were doing single row coverage um, and such that it was really about doing it right. And this is what I learned from you, of course, doing it right. Yes, your price is going to be higher, but the value is higher. So the total cost of ownership is not more. It is in many cases less the total cost of ownership, but the initial price is higher and you have to meet high price with high value and in that uh, presentation and sales process, that's what it's all about is educating the customer on why you're doing what you're doing. And you got to have that knowledge and that educational background to be able to speak to that. Yes. And one of the things that I learned through the process um, back in the day, we were just submitting pricing for our projects without any design. So all the customer was looking at was the numbers. And when we, finally moved into the AutoCAD and the programming, we were able to then submit designs with our pricing to show the customer what they were getting. Because the irrigation systems, again, you're just saying, okay, this is this many sprinkler heads and it's this many con this controls and this water supply, but there wasn't a layout showing the differentiating between um, our company and the other company. It was just about, they wanted to see the bottom line. And that's really where they, the education and the sales process allowed me to provide this information to my customer, explaining to them, here's what we're doing. Here's the area we're covering. Here's the efficiency of the sprinkler system. Here is the cost, but here's the actual water we feel we're going to be able to apply giving the system. And here's the savings we can achieve if you upgrade to the more modern technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that one of the things when I think back, I, I, you were able to get the customer to want to buy Paul in Chapel Valley. They knew that you were the best in the business and Chapel Valley was the best. And so if the bid that was being submitted was higher, they would say, Paul, we want to use you. Now let's negotiate this. And so you're able to take the competition out because they're picking you highest price project, but now it's time to actually negotiate this, knowing that they want to work with you. You want the job. Now you can negotiate this as professionals, not just the low bid contractor. And that's true. I mean, that's certainly one thing that I have learned in, in my career is um, if you can show the value, not in the price, but in the character and the process, um, you, you can win um, more times than any, um, unless there's well, again, Andy, have you learned as well, if it's just a contractor or general contractor putting in a, 
apartment complex and they're going to turn the building over in less than a year, it, those aren't the clients that you want to always deal with all the time because they just want the lowest cost because they're going to sell the building. It doesn't matter. They're going to turn it over to some other management company and they're not going to find the value and the benefit. So it's also finding the right client um, that, that sees the value, that sees the value in what it is you're doing. Because not all of the customers uh, see that value. Very true. Very true. So if you are an installation contractor um, and you may want to be selective on who you work with so that you can uh, charge the prices you want to charge and provide the value you want to provide and that your customer wants the same thing from you as a, as a contractor or as a professional service business or whatever your business is. Match your services with your customer needs. Yeah, hopefully you can do that, right? I mean, it's not always that easy. Uh, it's a matter of experience and learning who are going to be your good customers and who are going to be not so good customers and focus your effort on those customers who, who find the value in professionalism and in good quality work. Yeah. Okay. So your career, I know, took another jump forward when you uh, left Chapel Valley and you went off on your own to start your own consulting business. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you, what you were doing and how you started your first consulting business? Well, as I mentioned before, one of the values that I had in my career was working with a large landscape company that, that gave me the ability to grow and prosper, especially as a salesperson, because I was able to earn a, a decent amount of salary and commissions, um, being able to sell high volume work. Um, so the, the, the monies that I earned um, with the sales position that I had with Chapel Valley, I took that and, and I put it in the bank and it allowed me to do things that I wanted to do for myself. Right. And can I, um, let me just stop right there because I know that um, there's probably people listening and the, the, the salary range and the income range is probably quite wide. And there's probably some people that feel that in the irrigation industry, you can't earn six figures and you don't have to tell us what you earned, but if I'm not mistaken, you were making over six figures and sometimes well over six figures at Chapel Valley. Well, especially our, our last few, you know, last year with, with Chapel Valley, um, I, I was able to achieve the salesperson of the year um, because we had a really good year and I was able to support some very good landscape contractor or some landscape sales folks as well. But yes, I was able to fortunate at the time to be able to, to make a significant amount of, of money that last year or so I was with Chapel Valley based on our, our ability to sell projects. Um, and I think, Andy, I remember when we left, I was, it was six and a half or seven million is what I was able to, to achieve that last year. And here, yes. The reason I wanted to mention that is because I think that there's a lot of um, stigma or, or downplay in terms of what you can earn in this industry. And I always like to remind people that you can earn whatever the hell you want to earn because it's up to all of us as individuals to decide what we're going to earn. You made the decision, you know, a few years before earning what you earned and what you earn now that you want to make a difference and you want to earn more and you want to be better and you become what you think about, and that was the path you chose. So anyone that's listening, it's absolutely possible to make as much income as one desires. But yes, very good call on that. And so at the time, I, I just felt I, I wanted to expand. I wanted to do something for myself. Um, I wanted to do something different than what the company was doing. Chapel Valley was a landscape 
and irrigation contractor. I wanted to go into the design field at the time and I wanted to support the green building movement. And I wanted to um, learn and, and do systems that could catch rainwater and, and harvest condensation water and reuse that for irrigation systems. And I saw there was an opening in the market that there weren't folks really focused on that in, in my space. And that's where I really honed my skill, really learned, really dived into um, understanding what the green building movement would do towards water, water conservation, but also irrigation systems. So I, the D.C. metro area was a huge hotspot for green buildings. And there was, there was, there was a need for uh, irrigation consultant design that was focused on that. And I wanted to be that resource. And that, that's really what I focused my, my career on at the time. Um, with all the networking and all the training and all the green building efforts that were um, were around, that's what I focused on. And I was really able to find success in that as a consultant um, to be able to provide those services to the folks in this area and even outside of it who wanted to do green building. How many people were doing that at that time? How many other irrigation professionals were getting into the green building at that time? There were, there were zero. Zero. I, I love that because you were able to find a new, what you might call blue ocean that was able to separate you and where you were going from every other irrigation contractor, uh, consultant. You found this new opportunity uh, that no one else was looking at. Yeah. And it, and it was really exciting for me because I I am one of those types of persons that I, I like new stuff. I, I'm excited about trying something new. I'm willing to to go out on a limb and, and, and either we're going to go give it our all and we're going to fail and we're going to, at least we said we tried or we've been found fortunate enough that we've been able to succeed at being able to go out on a limb and try something new and do something different. So that's really where, you know, the, 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 exciting part of my life and my career was being able to do things differently and find success in it. What was the name of your consulting business? It was Hydrologic. Hydrologic. That's awesome. And how many years did you run that business? We, we were able to maintain that business right around four years. Um, and we, we decided on um, making another pivot right when the economy, right before the economy took a turn in 2007, 2008, where I saw another burgeoning um, opportunity to um, sort of expand the offerings and um, diversify the business. And the diversification came into a contract vehicle called energy service performance contracting. Or ideally, I'm earning money by how much water you save a customer in their facility. That sort of pivot happened in 2008 and then 2009 when we subsequently started uh, Water Savers. Right. So you took a, a short period of time, uh, pivoted Hydrologics, um, jumped in with a uh, performance energy contractor running in the irrigation division for them. And then pivoted again about 18 months later into your next venture. Is that about right? You got it. Yeah. So I was fortunate at the time um, I was doing some sub consulting work for a company um, that was doing water conservation performance contracting. And when I was consulting with them with Hydrologics, they really liked what I was providing them. And I was able to 
find savings in, in irrigation audits and retrofits of irrigation systems. Um, and um, I, I also at the time saw that the market started to slow down in construction and design and green buildings and all buildings. So it was sort of the the canary in the coal mine, I guess you can say, when it came to looking at the, the revenue that was coming in and the opportunities started to slow down in design. And I said, oh, well, listen, let me let me let make a pivot. Let me diversify the business. So I was still doing hydrologics, but I was started to get into the performance contracting as a consultant. And I, at the time, saw that this was something that was even better than what I was doing in green buildings because I now learned that I can earn a living by how much I save people in their utility bill. And I, I became more of a true asset to the customer where every dollar I saved is something that, that I could earn. That's so great. goes right to the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. So what we do today is in the businesses, you know, we write a business plan for every project we do the analysis is. And at the bottom of the page, it's a simple return on investment. So if we look at how much water one is using in a facility, and that equates out to dollars. And if we can go in and retrofit their systems and make them more efficient, that has a cost, but then it also applies a savings. So we do simple paybacks in the projects. We can have some projects that could turn around a simple payback is, is less than a year, or some of them are as high as 20 years. It just depends in general. But every project we do today now, we put a business case together for it and we submit that business case to our client. And if they're willing to invest in it, it pays for itself in the savings that we achieve in the utility bill. Awesome. And that business is called Water Savers? Well, it's Water Savers LLC, which we partnered with a company called Lighting Retrofits Incorporated. Um, yeah, that we started that business in 2009, right when the economy was at the lowest, we, we were able to find the niche um, there at the time. Um, so yeah, we, we, this business was um, bounded 10 years ago. And, and we were fortunate enough at the time that we had some really good folks that saw the opportunity in the water conservation business commercially, and they made an investment. And the investment was into that company, Water Savers. And how do you des describe your business? It is not an irrigation contracting business. It's actually not an irrigation business. For, for someone who may not be familiar with your particular space, how do you describe it? Well, what we do is we analyze the water consumption for all devices. And maybe give us a, can, can you give us like a snapshot of a type of project that you go after? So we'll just look at a, a college campus, for instance, you know, you might have a, a University of Maryland, Baltimore County, Andy, I know that's one you're familiar with. That particular campus has multiple buildings, it has dorms, it has athletic fields, it irrigates around the some of the buildings themselves. So our our team goes in and determines where all the devices are using water, toilets, urinals, faucets, showers, cooling systems, irrigation. So we we determine how much water is going through all those devices. We put together a project to show the consumption of all those devices. And then if we were to retrofit the devices with more efficient equipment, what is the savings between the baseline of the current consumption and the potential reduction of water and savings with the new devices? And then that value of that savings pays for the equipment that we install in the project. 
So it all gets paid for based on the amount of savings that we achieve in the reduction of water. Okay. And that is uh, all water on the property, indoor, outdoor, everything. You got it. And, and that was one of the benefits that I've learned from, from diversifying the business is, is instead of just being known as the irrigation guy, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, I always still want to be known as the, a sprinkler nerd or an irrigation guy. But um, yeah, it, it really gave me a good education of how water moves through an entire facility, an entire complex, entire even city um, to be able to find every way that we can reduce water um, through high fishing devices. So what, what does your team look like? And in future episodes, I'd like to have you back and we can talk more detailed about performance contracting and maybe some of the things that um, irrigators out there across the country might uh, keep their eyes open for and how they could participate. But what does your current team look like at Water Savers? We, we have a team of, so it, it's really twofold. Um, we have uh, engineers and auditors or auditors and engineers. So they're that team of, of gals and guys, um, they go in and, and collect all the onsite data of all the devices, um, fixtures, equipment, compressors, chillers, cooling towers. It was amazing to me as I learned the process of how much, how many pieces of equipment use water. But the teams go in there and they, they calculate and figure out how much water is being used. They collect all the data and all the parts and pieces of, of equipment that are using water. And then we put together a proposal. And, and how, how do you determine how much water a particular device is consuming? How do you measure it? So the team, we have folks on the team that, that are measurement and verification specialists. So we measure maybe a toilet flushing. We'll measure a faucet flowing. Uh, we'll analyze meter data on cooling systems or irrigation systems to see exactly how much they're using. If they don't have meters, our, our team will put in metering devices to make sure we can collect that information properly and evaluate the, the usage patterns to be able to identify how much water is using the sites using in a given year, ideally is where we look at it. Um, and then we put together the proposal for the client with the construction cost. And then if that particular project is accepted, we have teams of plumbers and electricians and irrigation technicians and all those um, talented tradespeople to go in and then install the equipment to ensure that, you know, it, it gets installed correctly and then we monitor and, and maintain, hopefully, the systems long-term to ensure the savings of the, the water conservation measures we put in place um, are saving, as, as we said in our proposal. Awesome. Awesome. And I know you've shared some stories with me about these audits that, that you've done yourself, and you have found, for lack of a better word, open-ended pipes with water flowing to nowhere. Do you have any stories like that you could share where you just discovered this leak that was 50 gallons a minute? Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of those, um, uh, unfortunately, but fortunately in my business, um, because a lot of times the folks don't get to see the leaks because they're hidden and they're hard to see. And, um, it really comes out in the data analytics when you get to look at trying to find this. So what we do is we try to do a uh, when we do a project, we benchmark it. So we benchmark the site 
type. So if it's an office building and it has this square footage, then that office building should be using this many gallons per square foot. Okay. And if we do an analysis and we go, well, that thing's using 15, 20, 30% more water than the benchmark, then we know that there's something going on. What is going on? Where's the problem? A majority of the time when we find the problem, it lies in two key places. One of them is irrigation systems that are operating way over than they should. And another one is in the cooling system, which uses a solenoid control valve sometimes or even a float to the cooling tower. And these things are hidden inside of a big machine that nobody really ever sticks their head inside of it. So, you know, a lot of times, again, it's just a matter of opening the hood up and looking on what's under the hood and finding things that most folks don't see and or Two, Andy, what we've been able to do is um, simply popping sewer manholes um, in a building and and seeing how much water's flowing out of that that pipe, and I, that's really where we've been able to identify a lot of leaks. And then you track back and find out where that leak is, and it could be as simple as a toilet flush valve running on the seventh floor in a bathroom that nobody sees. It could be the fill valve to the cooling tower that's wide open. It could be the fill valve to uh, ornamental water feature. I found way more of those than I possibly could imagine telling today. So on a water feature, you just, um, you just I could visualize that because I'm more familiar with water features than cooling towers. Yes, it's <laughs> so, similar, by the way, almost, almost the same. So if there is a fill that's stuck open, filling a... Uh, water feature, my guess is that a water feature also has an overflow. So that particular leak may go- be invisible to the naked eye because water is just going in to the water feature and then it goes down the drain. So it's always at the same level unless you're measuring the input. Is that sort of the, that, the that, scenario? That is the same, same scenario, Andy, as a cooling tower. Yes, there's a fill valve that, that activates either via float or a sensor. So when the, the tower, the basin is full, it should shut off. But if it's stuck, which it does happen, it's stuck and it's, the, the, there's an overflow in the basin and the water just goes right down the drain. And if you're not trained or you're not looking for it, there's significant leaks that occur. And um, I, nine times out of 10, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty simple to fix it. So the paybacks on those are really, really fast. Right. Right. Okay. Awesome. Well, that's a good snapshot of, of what you're doing in, in that space. And like I said, we'd, I'd like to jump back on with you at a, at a later time and get more into the science of the, um, of the data. Um, one sort of last thing before we wrap this up, where are you seeing uh, technology advancing in your business right now? A great question, and, and it is advancing. It seems like every year we're seeing a whole lot of new wireless technology coming out. Um, We've been experimenting with some wireless control valves for sure. I got, I got your flowy right here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also being able to, to um, connect to existing water meters and capture that information wirelessly to be able to do uh, good data analytics on, on how much water is being consumed in a site without cutting a pipe or without connecting a valve. Um, so that's where I'm seeing a lot of it is in the wireless technology when it comes to measuring water, um, as well as the wireless technology um, to actuate a 
valve, whether it's a solenoid valve or if it's a gate valve. Um, I've been experimenting with some new technology out there, which I really like. And I see that's going to be something, at least hopefully, that we're going to be able to deploy in the future where the costs are coming down, the devices are more robust, the batteries last 15, 20 years. So that's really where I see the, the, the technology moving in our space in the future. Appreciate you sharing all this information with us, especially your journey. Um, like I said in the beginning, I don't know of probably an, another person in this industry that has worked in every single aspect from where we started today, which was the general laborer making minimum wage uh, to where you are now, which is setting the standard uh, for this industry and for performance contracting and water savings. So, Paul, thank you so much for sharing all this with us and look forward to having you back on the show again. Well, Andy, I, you know, I commend you for what you're doing, putting this together, reaching out to folks, providing knowledge and experience from others to be able to hopefully allow them to learn from the things that we've been able to achieve in our career. So again, thank you. And I look forward to the next episode. Awesome, man. Great, Paul. Have a good day, brother. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. All right, guys, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Sprinkler Nerd Show. I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity to introduce you to Paul Bassett. Paul has so much going on, and he is always pushing his limits to grow in his career and to challenge this industry with new innovations and water-saving strategies. If you want to ask any questions about this episode or talk more to me or to Paul, head over to Facebook and join our private community. You can look that up under Sprinkler Nerd. This is a private group of irrigation professionals where we can share our information, knowledge, some of our tips and tricks, and build good camaraderie together. We'd also love to have your feedback on iTunes. This is still a young podcast, and we look forward to reading and responding to all of your feedback and comments that you may have for us. So I think that's going to wrap it up, guys. Thanks so much. And until the next episode, happy sprinkling, and we'll talk to you soon.